On the night of December 19, 1979, Michelle Marie Martinko was just like any other 18-year-old girl. She was getting ready for Christmas, but after some late-night shopping at a new mall, Michelle never came home. Hours later, she was dead in her car, suffering 29 stab wounds to her face, body, neck, and hands. There were no suspects. There were no clues. For 40 years, this case would remain cold, but far from forgotten. Nearly four decades later, DNA on the dress Michelle wore on the night she was murdered matched a killer no one suspected. This is the story of Michelle Martinko and Jerry Burns, 40 years in the making. Hey y'all, I'm Chris Calvert. And I'm her husband, Rob Potter. Welcome to Hitch to Homicide. For better or worse. Till death do us part. Welcome back, everybody. Yes, welcome, welcome, and welcome. <laughs> You're going to find new ways to do this every week, I have a feeling. Try and... The, the holy trinity of welcomes. Well, you got to change it up, right? Welcome, welcome, welcome. Got to keep it interesting. We're so glad you guys are back with us again this week. Yep. I went into the cold case files for this one. It's a really interesting case. There, there is some uh, on the back end of it. There's a lot of it that's new. So that's why I wanted to bring this one back up again. Okay. We're going out into the Midwest, out to Iowa. Nice. Have you ever been to Iowa? I have driven through Iowa. In my 20s, bandmates of mine, they got a gig in Baltimore and we drove cross country. From Baltimore to no, 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 no. From, Iowa? No, from California. Oh, from California. Yeah, okay. That was, that was when I was living in California. Well, you said Baltimore. Yeah, they got a gig in Baltimore. And you drove from, Cali I'm so confused. <laughs> we were in California and they got a gig. In Baltimore. In Baltimore. So what does this have to do with Iowa again? We drove through it. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Welcome to most of our discussions, everyone. You just got a little insight. You just got a little insight into our real <laughs> life. There it is right there. Well, wherever you're listening to this craziness... Like, rate, and review. Be sure to go in and join the In-Laws and Outlaws, our yep. closed Facebook group. We're having a lot of fun in there. That group is getting so huge, <laughs> so huge, yeah. so quickly, and everybody's having a good time. We love everybody in there. It's a lot, it's I, a lot of fun. I try to interact with them as much as I can right at this moment. I promise I'll get better. I'm just a little overwhelmed with projects at the moment. But I, he's, I a, he's a busy guy. He's it's, a very busy man. Right now, it's nuts. Did you like my... I never do voices, and I just did a voice. It was a Joan Crawford. Was that Joan? <laughs> no wire hangers ever. <laughs> no wire hangers ever. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We're really, really off the subject. Probably because neither one of us have had any sleep yeah. in the last week. We've both just been working like crazy people. Sleep is overrated. It is. I'll sleep when I'm dead. That's what my mother-in-law always yep, said. Ain't that the truth. I'm going to jump right into this. I want to thank some sources. WKCC in Des Moines, Iowa. A&E's Killer Cases, the Sandhill Express, the Cedar Rapids Gazette, CBS News, iowacoldcases.org, the Des Moines Register. Good. Let's, Let's do, do it. it. Michelle Martinko is born on October 6, 1961 in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Her parents are Albert and Janet Martinko, and Michelle has an older sister, Janelle. There's like 12 years difference, and I was thinking... Is, there's 12 years difference between you and your older brother as well. Actually, 13. 13 years yeah. difference. I was an oops baby. Yeah. Well, I don't think that Michelle was an oops baby. I think she was like a she was like a, a, a little gift from God. I think, I don't know if they had trouble getting pregnant or whatever, but they called her like, you know, she was like this miracle baby. Sure. But that did make me think of you. So she's got an older sister, Janelle. Michelle is talented. She's kind and upbeat. She was a loyal friend, a faithful girlfriend. Michelle attended Cedar Rapids Kennedy High School. Hmm. 
She was a really good student. She was well-liked by her teachers. In her sophomore year at Cedar Rapids, Kennedy, she joined the twirling squad, (laughs) which she was a baton twirler. There's a picture of this. I will post it in the in-laws and outlaws. She was also a gifted vocalist, and she performed with the school's show choir, as did I. Mm -hmm. Did you perform with your show choir? You were just a solo act in high school, right? No, no, actually, no, just the chorus. Just the chorus. Well, okay, so she did show choir, and then she was also in the school's theater productions, as was I. As As, was I. uh, Yes, you were. Both of us were. She was also active in campus life and attended St. Pius Catholic Church, and she had a job at an apparel shop in the Lindale Mall. Okay. I just wrote in my notes here, she worked retail, Hmm. and I personally think everybody should have to work retail or wait tables Mm -hmm. once in their lifetime. I did it once in my lifetime. I sold pianos. (laughs) <laughs> well, I sold men's clothing. I can still mark a man's suit. Yeah, I was like the, nobody's business. And I was the dude that was in the mall playing Lady of Spain on welding. <laughs> it was the I, worst gig I ever had. I can picture this now, but my point is everybody needs a job where someone looks at them and with the asymmetrical haircut and says, I need to talk to a manager. Yeah, exactly. You know, I think it just builds character, but she worked. She worked in retail at this apparel shop. She was a beautiful girl. And this is in the time of the original Charlie's Angels. This is Mm. 1979. And she really looked like one. And there's so many cute photos of her. And she had the hair. The Farrah hair. She had some har, like, (laughs) you know, bigger the har, the closer to Jesus Mm -hmm. or closer to God, whatever you want to say. There's some Aquanet happening. There's some Aquanet going on in these pictures. Stay away from any open flames. But she's adorable. She was adorable. She was very in style. You could tell she was very stylish teen. Mm -hmm. She was blonde, petite. And I read that she didn't have many close girlfriends or confidants. And most believed that this was because she was so pretty. Hmm. Don't know if that was true or not. That was actually in an old newspaper article that um, that so I'm going to cite. Were people intimidated by her? I, I don't. I don't know. She is a pretty girl. Yeah. She dated on again, off again boyfriend. His name was Andy Seidel. And as a senior, she had plans to attend Iowa State University in the fall. She wanted to study interior design. So the year is 1979, and I just kind of want to set the stage. This is the year that the Three Mile Island nuclear accident happened. Hmm. The board game Trivial Pursuit was launched. Oh, wow. Pink Floyd released The Wall. Yep. Sony released The Walkman. (laughs) It was $250, too. Wow, wow. ESPN launched for the first time on cable television. The snowboard was invented. Hmm. Jimmy Carter is president of the United States. 63 Americans are taken hostage in the American embassy in Tehran. There was a huge gas shortage. People waited in line for gas. Inflation was high, 13.3%. Wow. Currently, inflation's 8.5. Wow. So everybody knows what it feels like right now because my bacon got really expensive this year. (laughs) And if you know me, I have to have bacon every morning. Trust me. I do. But so, yeah, we're at 8.5 right now while we're recording this, but it was at 13.3 in 1979. Just reminds me of the Billy Joel tune. What's that? We didn't start the fire. Yeah, we didn't start the fire. Exactly. Exactly. Now, on the night of December 19th, 1979, Michelle went to a banquet for the Kennedy Concert Choir, and she was dressed to the nines. The party was at the Sheridan Inn in Cedar Rapids, and that night, stylish Michelle wore a black jersey dress. And if you don't know what jersey is, that's kind of like the slinky material. Mm -hmm. She wore a black jersey dress with a scarf and black tights and black heels, and it's cold outside. It's actually 30 degrees that night in Cedar Rapids. Rapids in December because I looked it up and she was wearing a waist length white and brown rabbit fur coat. Wow. She's dressed up. Yeah. And she was also carrying a brown leather purse. Just wanted to add that in there because they said she was carrying a brown purse. Okay. I would have carried a black purse to match the (laughs) shoes, but that is just me. But I have seen a picture of her before she goes off to this little banquet and she's adorable. Nice. When the banquet is over, Michelle asks her friend and fellow twirler if she wanted to go to the new Westdale Mall. It had just opened and Michelle had never been there. By the way, I laughed when you first said twirler before. That was nothing against baton 
Twirling. Twirling. Yeah. It was just I never heard it called twirling. Twirl, a twirler. Yeah, I know. It just made me laugh. So I me I, me either. And respect for the the majorettes. And, oh my gosh, they're so oh yeah. good. Yeah, they're amazing. So when I laughed, I, I I thought, oh, I hope nobody thinks that I'm making fun of them. Not. I just never heard twirling. Well, the before. good ones are good because yeah. I can't lie. I was what's what was called a Lexette here in Lexington, Kentucky, when I was a teeny tiny little kid. I still have my uniform. It's about eight inches long because I think I was maybe five or six. Mm -hmm. I was not a good baton twirler, (laughs) but I have mad respect for, especially for the way they set them on fire and start twirling. So yeah, yeah, you got to love that. I don't know that she was setting her batons on fire, but yeah. But But I learned a new word, a twirler. She's a twirler. (laughs) Exactly. But when the banquet is over, Michelle asks her friend and fellow twirler, I just want to say my sentence again, if she wanted to go to the new Westdale Mall, because Michelle had never been there. It was brand spanking new mall. It's 1979. The mall was the place to be. Sure. And Michelle had some shopping to do. It's it's December 19th, right? Mm-hmm. And I thought this was funny. She had some shopping to do, but she also wanted to purchase a new winter coat for herself. <laughs> That's my kind of girl. You got to shop for yourself and shop for everybody else. Yeah. That's how you shop. But in her pocket, she had with her $180, okay. which was a lot of money in sure. 1979. She, right now, she'd be carrying around $713 wow. in her pocket. Wow. But that's what she's got going on when she arrives at the mall at 7 p.m. She's looking fly. She got her rabbit coat on, her black heels. On. She's got the blonde hair with a Farrah flip going on. And she's doing a little shopping. And she's in the mall where all the kids love to go. Where everybody is. Sure. She's in the mall. And you know it's crowded because it's Christmas. Sure. She did some shopping. She spoke with one of her classmates, Kurt Thomas, at the mall. Michelle's last known stop was a jewelry store around 9 p.m. before Kurt walked Michelle to the mall exit. Now, Michelle's car was parked in the northeast part of the brand new mall by the J.C. Penney. This is a mall with absolutely zero surveillance cameras because it's 1979. Kurt said goodbye to her, waved to her, and he watched her walk away. And here is what will later be proposed as the events that followed. Michelle leaves the mall and waves goodbye to her friend, Kurt. Someone is watching her. This someone follows her out of the mall and into the parking lot. Michelle is taken by surprise as she's getting into her 1972 tan and green Buick Electra. The person who's been following her, he pushes her into the car and she starts to fight him. She is fighting for her life. Hmm. And because she's seen his face, he needs to eliminate her because she'll be able to identify him. Sure. Because she'll be able to identify him, he stabs her. He stabs her 29 times in the face, in the neck, in the chest. She slumps over in the passenger seat. Michelle Martinko is dead. Wow. Now, around 2 a.m., Michelle hasn't come home, and her parents are worried because, again, no cell phones. It's not like back then you couldn't track your kids. You just trusted that, you know, they were where they said they were going to be. Right. And by the time it's 2 a.m., her parents are worried sick. They call police. They let them know that Michelle was going to the mall after her choir party, and police start searching for her, and her dad gets in his car, and he starts searching for her, too. Of course. Finally, around 4 a.m. in the mall parking lot, the police locate the family's 1972 Buick, and inside collapsed over the passenger seat is Michelle. Hmm. Stabbed 29 times. She had defensive wounds on her hands that showed she'd fought off her attacker. But the nature of where she is stabbed makes the police think that it's personal. It's very personal. Yeah. In the face. Yeah. She's a beautiful girl and she gets stabbed in the face and the neck and the chest, but not everything in the chest, like going for the kill to the heart. Right. There was so little blood outside the car that police know that Michelle was murdered inside Inside. the car. And by the state of her body, the medical examiner will say later that she was murdered between 9 and 10 p.m. that night. There was no murder weapon on the scene, but the medical examiner said she was killed with something, quote, sharp pointed, end quote. (laughs) You think? But not conclusively a knife. What? 
I don't know why they couldn't say whether or not it was a knife or not. What else would it be? And the medical examiner couldn't determine the size of the weapon either. So if it was someone who stabbed and then tore down, or if it was a screwdriver kind of thing that went in, it was violent. So it's not like these are, I don't think these are like clean stab wounds where it's it's very obvious that this was like a serrated edge or whatever. Gotcha. They couldn't discern what was happening. Right. On the scene that night was Detective Harvey Denlinger, who joined the department in 1972 and had just that year been promoted to detective. At home, 44-year-old Harvey has seven kids, including a five-year-old son named Matthew. Hmm. That's called foreshadowing. Uh Uh-oh. There were no fingerprints in this car, and the police believe that's because the killer wore gloves. And remember, she had all that cash in her wallet, but it's all there. And her purse was there, too. So this is not a robbery. Now, we already know that the police think this is a very personal killing, but she had not been sexually assaulted. Okay. And police, I think for that reason, didn't know if she'd been murdered by a man or a woman. Ah. Because I think they just assumed that if she had been stabbed and she's so beautiful and she's in her car that she would have been raped. Right. But she wasn't. On the other hand, Michelle's family is pretty convinced that Michelle had been murdered by her ex-boyfriend, the on-again, off-again guy, Andy Seidel. Okay. And they believe this because there was really no one who could possibly want Michelle dead. And these two had called it quits in a, quote, rather unsatisfactory way, end quote, (laughs) according to Michelle's sister, Janelle. So it was an ugly breakup. Right. Michelle broke up with Andy and he didn't want to go away and he wasn't giving up that easily. And he was butthurt. And she was done. Yeah. But he was in love with her and he didn't want it to end. So Michelle's family is thinking that Andy has done this sort of if I can't have her, no no one else can have her kind of thing. And while Michelle's family is saying, yo, check out Andy, the police are also looking into the last person to see her alive, her friend from school, Kurt Thomas. Right. Now, police bring Kurt to the police station and begin questioning him. And according to Kurt, it was a nightmare because when Kurt is brought into the station, he doesn't even know that Michelle has been murdered. Oh, wow. He has no idea she's even dead. And according to him, the police played good cop, bad cop with him. And in this scenario, the bad cop turned around, leaned over a chair in the interrogation room and flat out asked Kurt, why did you kill her? Oh, jeez. And this is a kid. He's 18 years old. So, you know, he's scared to death. And the fact that he didn't even know that she was dead. He didn't know she was dead. And this cop is in his face. Hey, why did you kill her? Wow. Now, this is a time with no video footage of the mall or the parking lot. No DNA testing. There are no eyewitnesses. And police are trying to get a confession out of Kurt. They're trying to get a confession out of this kid. And he tells him, I didn't kill Michelle. And of course, they have no evidence that he killed her either. Right. And in actuality, the Grand Rapids Police Department has zero evidence and zero leads. And that's a problem because inside the car is Michelle's blood. But there could be other blood that isn't hers. Sure. They have nothing on Kurt. They have to let him go. Right. Now, the people in the small town of Cedar Rapids start coming up with their own version of why Michelle was murdered. She was involved in a drug ring. She was a prostitute. Lies, <laughs> lies, more lies. Yeah. And Michelle's mom would even get these crank phone calls after Michelle's murder, like phone calls where people would call her parents home. And when the mother answered, the person on the other end would say things like, Mom, mom, mother, mother, oh, it's Michelle. People are sick. People are evil. Wow. Evil. And that, of course, you know, no caller ID, so you can't Mm -hmm. do anything about that. But people are cruel. Right. And again, police have absolutely nothing to hang their hats on on this case. So in June of 1980, they use hypnosis as a way to hopefully get a description of Michelle's killer. Because witnesses remember things under hypnosis that they don't otherwise. Right. 30 people went under hypnosis as a part of this investigation, and it gave them two reliable witnesses, two women who didn't even know each other, but they gave the same description of one man. Okay. And a composite was drawn, and police then compared it to all the photos in the Kennedy High School yearbook, and then psychics were brought in for this investigation. Wow. They needed our friend Catherine Kaufman on the case because she would have cracked this case right away. (laughs) But what they came up with was this composite. I'll put it up in the in-laws and outlaws. 
These two say that the suspect, these two women who were under hypnosis, who agree, say that the suspect is a white male in his late teens, early 20s. He stands 5'11", or six feet tall, brown curly hair, weighs between 165 and 175 pounds. Okay. Now, this is an interesting thing, because I have this in my notes. I could probably say, if I looked at a man or a female and said, that's, that's about six feet tall. Right. Or they're about my height. They're, they're about 5'5". Five, five. I would be terrible at predicting somebody's weight. Yeah. I don't even know how people do that. Yeah, I, I definitely wouldn't win stuffed animals at the carnival. <laughs> so whenever I like write this stuff down or find it in my research, I'm like, how do they know he weighs 175 pounds? Yeah. Why would you think he weighed 175 pounds? Anyway, I just found that odd. How That's just me. 5'11". 5'11". That's pretty... Specific? Yeah. It's wildly specific. Yeah. Well, they're under hypnosis. Okay. So maybe that's what I need. I need somebody under hypnosis to (laughs) (laughs) describe me. Wow. But there's a reward for any information leading to an arrest in Michelle's case. And the reward was $15,000. Moolah. Now, for 40 years, 40 years, think about this. Yeah. And every Christmas, friends and family of Michelle's in Cedar Rapids would come together and honor her life. They would go to her grave but they, they just wanted to make sure that nobody ever forgot her death. Sure. The news stations would do stories on it. You know, every single year they would bring this back up again. Just in her honor. Yeah, but they just didn't want people to forget about her or this case because it was still completely unsolved. Sure. And years go by without a peep. And Michelle's parents would go to their own graves not knowing who killed their daughter. Mm. Although Michelle's mom, Janet, kept a diary, and in it she was convinced that the boyfriend, Andy, was the killer. And she just couldn't wrap her head around the fact that the police could never find a way to prove that he had murdered her daughter. Mm. And there's a reason for that, Janet. Fast forward to 1986. DNA is used for the first time in forensic science to verify a suspect's confession. That was the very first DNA case. Somebody confessed, and then they used his DNA to make sure he was telling the truth. Okay. Fast forward four decades after Michelle Martinko's murder and add in a new police officer on a mission, and they have something. Okay. They have something big. Uh Uh-oh. Because sitting on a shelf for all these years in an evidence locker is the black dress worn by Michelle on the night she's murdered. Oh, wow. And on the dress is her blood. And also on her dress is the blood of her killer. There you go. And in 2006, it had never been tested for DNA. So they do just that. They send the little black dress off to get the DNA of the killer himself. Now, police basically ask everyone, everyone, the friend, Kurt, the boyfriend, Andy, other friends, acquaintances, Police ask them all to submit DNA samples. Right. First on the list, Andy Seidel, the boyfriend. He is not a match. And when I wrote that, I even wrote in parentheses, I sound like Maury Povich. (laughs) You are not the father. (laughs) You are not the killer. You are not the killer. So police move on to the last person to see Michelle alive. The guy that they berated, the guy that they said, why did you kill her? Kurt Kurt Thomas. Yeah. And by now, Kurt is in Oklahoma. He's married to a judge. And police say, hey, Kurt, we're going to we're going to need a little DNA sample. And Kurt goes, "Uh, no, thank you. No, thank you. And his wife tells him not to give the DNA. So Kurt's attorney writes a letter and Kurt calls the officer who sent the request for the DNA to him. Kurt reads this statement over the phone to the officer. And when he's finished... He hears the officer put the phone down and announce to the room and whomever was in it. This is what he says. He puts the phone down and says, quote, we got our killer, Uh end quote. Wow. The officer tells Kurt, we're going to get a warrant for your DNA. We're going to get a warrant for your arrest. I've always liked you as Michelle's killer, end quote. Wow. (laughs) A bold statement. I'm telling you, geez. Yeah, a bold move. You better be sure about that. So Kurt does, after some papers are signed, give his DNA sample. And guess what? It's not a match. It is not a match. And in fact, the police call Kurt's attorney when the results come in. And when his attorney answered, 
The policeman on the other end said, quote, he's not a match, end quote, and then hung up. <laughs> Uh, nice. He was hanging up before he got served with a, yeah, a lawsuit. Yeah, he's not a match. <laughs> Click. Yeah. But of the hundreds of people tested, there was no match. No match. Again, a dead end. No matches. Hmm. Then in 2015, Detective Matt Denlinger takes on this case. Matt's father, Harvey, wasn't assigned this case back in 1979, but he was on the scene of the murder, and he did a lot of interviews for the murder case. Okay. And remember I said at home he had a little boy, Matthew, who was five, yeah. and now Matt is a detective on the same force as his father. That's neat. And I have to say, in all respect to Harvey, but his name, Harvey Denlinger, it sounds like a Broadway musical character name. <laughs> <laughs> I think he sounds like a, a mystery novel guy, yeah, a detective. Yeah. And he is a detective. So a great name. Perfect. Yeah, no, perfect cool. name for him. But let me tell you a little bit about Matt, because this guy's pretty special. Matt Denlinger had no plans to go into law enforcement. And in fact, he was going to be a special education teacher because hmm. he spent a lot of his time caring for his special needs brother, Jamie, who passed away in 2005. He even did his student teaching. But then after college, he decided to go into law enforcement. And when this case gets to his desk, he's like a dog with a bone, man. He's like, I'm, I am not letting this go. Right. He goes through 7,000 pages of reports. Wow. Everything in his predecessor's notes, including some from his own dad on the case. And Matt wants to look at the case with fresh eyes and from a new perspective. Sure. It's Christmas 2015, and while Matt is trying to think outside the box, his wife received a Christmas gift of Ancestry.com. Uh-oh. They are not a sponsor of the show, Ancestry.com. I have an account there. I go through and look up stuff all the time, especially on my own family. Yeah. But this is pretty cool. And Matt thought, hmm. And his wife said, hey, honey, wouldn't it be something if a service like this could help you with your Michelle Martinko case? Yeah. And he said, you know, I think you're onto something here. Right. And I completely paraphrase that whole conversation, but you get the gist of it. That's how it happened. Okay. Everybody needs a good wife in the background going, hey, honey, hey, I honey. think this is a good idea. <laughs> yeah, important safety tip. When, you're, uh, when your wife says, hey, honey, that usually means just do it. <laughs> <laughs> so Matt gets involved with this company called Parabon Nano Labs in Virginia. And Parabon, based on the DNA of the killer from the dress... There was also DNA left on the gear shift knob of the car. Their scientists were able to, get this, procure an image of the suspect based on the DNA. What? How amazing is that? It's how, an, uh, it's how, an, how does that work? It's an image created from the DNA sample by anticipating what someone may look like based on the likelihood of the traits in their DNA. Whoa. Hair color, skin color, eye color, facial structure, stuff like that. Cleft huh. chin. Huh. It's called the snapshot technique. Wow. This is what I read in an article. It's like putting a face on a phantom. Wow. Amazing. But, you know, I mean, I've done the DNA testing thing and it has sent me stuff back like, yeah, yeah I do want to murder someone when I can hear them chewing. And that came back <laughs> on my DNA. Yeah. And, you know, and I don't like cilantro. And that came back as well. So wow. it's really interesting the things that they, you know, that they come up with. Right. I just learned that I was more Irish than anything, which is no surprise since I have red hair. <laughs> is it you have red hair? Yeah. yeah. I spent all that money to find that out. Come on. Yeah. Well, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I'm My descendants are from uh, County Cork in Ireland. So nice. there you have it. Nice. But they create this composite and I have these PDFs. It's pretty daggone cool. I will share them in the in-laws and outlaws group. They did this snapshot and then they aged him by 40 years. Mm -hmm. And then they gave the snapshots like different hairstyles. And they unveil these renderings to the public with the hope that a bunch of people are going to come forward and say, I know that guy and here's his name. Right. But what happens is they have about 200 people call in and they all thought he was somebody different. <laughs> So there wasn't a consensus that it was just one person. It was just a bunch of people calling in to say, yeah, that's Joe Blow. Right. I know him. I'd know him anywhere. Right, right. And that's a problem. That's our neighbor, and I never suspected him. <laughs> you know I suspect him. <laughs> <laughs> but Detective Denlinger isn't giving up that easily. 
So something interesting is going to happen that's going to change everything. Because in the spring of 2018, the Golden State Killer is finally found. A former police officer named Joseph D'Angelo is brought to justice because of very sophisticated and innovative DNA technology. And by submitting DNA to a genealogy database, they try to get a hit on who the killer's relatives are just to get closer to the killer. And in the beginning, people used this DNA technology to find their birth families. This was really something that was more for like people who were put up for adoption. Sure, They take the combined DNA index system to a new level. It's called a GED match, the public genealogy website. GED is short for genealogical data, and the GE is capitalized. Genealogical data. It's not getting your high school diploma. No, it's not the same thing. (laughs) So now suddenly there's this ray of hope after all these years. Hope. Right. And what they're looking for in this database of over a million people is just one person who has significant amounts of shared DNA with this one unknown suspect. Okay. And in July of 2018, they get a hit. Boom. Detective Dinlanger gets a call. We found a relative of your killer. What? The first hit came... From the DNA that matched with a woman who was living in Washington State. She's ground zero. It's like being patient number one. She's ground zero. And by the way they describe it, it's like building a family tree. And this woman in Washington State was a second cousin once removed, meaning separated by one generation. Right. She's second cousin once removed of the person who murdered Michelle. Wow. And her name is Brandy Jennings, and she lives in Vancouver, Washington. Okay. So the phenotyping company begins creating this family tree, starting with Brandy's great-great-grandparents, and then they report that the killer was most likely descended from one of those couples. Detective Denlinger contacts these people and DNA tests members of the two branches of the family tree, and he begins to eliminate stuff. So he eliminates them both as containing the killer. Right. And then he contacts a member of the third branch of the tree, and a DNA test determined that they were, in fact, first cousins with the killer. Wow. And this narrowed down the suspects to a set of three brothers. Wow. Brothers who had grown up in Manchester, Iowa, just 47 miles north of Cedar Rapids. How cool. I mean, not cool that they killed anybody, but how cool that they could trace I mean, is this crazy or what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the three brothers' names were Kenneth, Jerry, and Donald Burns. Okay. And here's how it goes down. Dun, dun, dun. None of them have a criminal record. All of them are well-respected businessmen. Ken and Jerry both still live in Manchester, and Donald now lives in Davenport, Iowa. So here's what police do. They set up a super, super secret surveillance. They don't want anybody to know what's up. They do, it's a small town. They right. don't want the Barney Fife's on the force to get it back, you know, at the Elks Lodge just for them to find out what's happening. So right. it's this highly, highly secret surveillance. What they need is to collect DNA from each of these brothers. Okay. So they watch them and they wait because they need to know which one of them has the matching DNA. And in the beginning, police think that the most likely suspect is Kenneth Burns. I have no idea why they think it's Kenneth Burns, but they follow him first. He makes great documentaries, though. They fo- Ken Burns, that's <laughs> no, right. No, no. <laughs> Wrong just, guy. Sorry, just Wrong kidding. guy. Sorry, Ken. <laughs> <laughs> But they follow Kenneth for a day, and he has lunch at a golf course clubhouse, and they see him drinking out of a straw. And after he leaves lunch, they walk over, they collect the straw out of his glass, walk away, (laughs) take it to a lab. And it was a priority. They were like, put a rush on it. And within days, they have a result after testing the new DNA collected on the straw to the 40-year-old DNA the killer left behind. Kenneth is not... A match. Tell him what he's won, Maury. You are not the father. (laughs) Yeah, he's not a match. So they check out the next brother, Donald Burns. And honestly, I'll post all of these photos in the in-laws and outlaws. But Donald, I think, is the one who looks the most like the snapshot composite that they made based on the first round of DNA stuff, evidence that they put together. 
I think it looks mostly like Donald. But they're three brothers. You sure. know, you, you look like your siblings usually. Right. Now, like I said before, Donald lives in Davenport, Iowa. So they wait outside his house for him to take out his garbage, and they collect a glass and a toothbrush out of the garbage. <laughs> you can pretty much get uh, good DNA from a toothbrush. They rush it to the lab, and Donald is not a match. So it only leaves the last brother. So why do I have a feeling we're saving the best for last? Jerry. And this is the way they actually did it, too. It's not like they went to Jerry first. Right. They tested Jerry last. Jerry, the brother that police have up to this point believed was the least likely guy <laughs> to be the killer. October 29th, 2018, Manchester, Iowa. They are so close. Jerry Lynn Burns leaves his business around lunchtime and heads to the Pizza Ranch Buffet. Oh, nice. He has multiple sodas drinking out of a plastic straw. Mm. When he gets up and leaves after lunch, the police swoop in, take the drinking straw. It's time to head back to the lab, and they rush the sample through the lab again, quickly test it, and... It's a match. It was a match. Nice. It was a match. Wow. So here's a little bit about the person whose lips were so tightly wrapped around that straw. The last straw I wrote in here, <laughs> Jerry Lynn Burns. Jerry Lynn Burns was born in 1953 in Manchester, Iowa. He grew up in Manchester, graduated from West Delaware High School in 1972. Jerry was an entrepreneur, and after working for John Deere Tractors and co-owning a truck stop with his brother, he now owned and operated a powder coating business, hmm. Advanced Coating Concepts. Okay. And if you don't know what that is, it's when they use powder coating and... It's applied electrostatically. I only know this because I had a filing cabinet done. <laughs> but it's that industrial paint that's on the outside. You'll yeah. see like on the outside of equipment and stuff. And that's what he does. It's used on a lot of industrial equipment. Right. April 5th, 1975, Jerry marries Patricia, Mary Pat. She goes by Pat Dunkel. Pat attended St. Mary's Catholic High School and graduated from West Delaware High School in 1971. And following graduation, she attended Kirkwood College and worked for Dr. Robert Gallagher as a dental assistant. Then later, she worked at Exide Batteries and Monana Wire. She and Jerry had three children, a son, James, and two daughters, Jennifer and Jane. They also had one granddaughter. And according to Pat's obituary, these two loved farming and gardening together. And I say according to Pat's obituary because on Monday, June 29th, 2008, Pat committed suicide. Hmm. Very sad. But not the end of the tragedy around Jerry because on December 19th, 2013, the 34th anniversary of Michelle Martinko's murder, Jerry's cousin Brian Burns goes missing. Brian has never been found. Hmm. But these aren't the only two suspicious goings on around Jerry. And I'm going to talk okay. about that a little bit later. On the night of the murder, Jerry Burns would have been about 25 years old, the night Michelle Martinko was killed. There was no connection between Jerry and Michelle, nor was there any connection between Jerry and the Westdale Mall where Michelle had gone shopping that night. Right. But it was Christmas time. Jerry didn't have more than a minor traffic violation on his record. Okay. But DNA doesn't lie. Yeah. So here's the plan. It's like a fingerprint. It, yeah, it's, it's more than a fingerprint. Yeah. So here's the plan. Detective Matt Denlinger and another retired detective who had worked on the case with his dad, J.D. Smith, they go to Manchester, Iowa to advanced coding concepts. They just want to talk to Jerry. Mm -hmm. They choose December 19th, 2018, hmm. 39 years to the day that Michelle is murdered. Coincidence? I think not. To walk into this man's place of business, to That's walk into Jerry's place of business. Nice strategy. Yeah. Yeah. They walk in, they're going to ask him some questions. Yeah, not, not a coinky-dink that they did yeah. that at all. And Detective Denlinger has on a secret body cam. And according to him, there was, quote, no smoke and mirrors. We had no tricks up our sleeves, end quote. To which I say, you don't need smoke and mirrors or tricks because it's no longer a, an illusion. The face of the yeah. murderer, you know, this is all real now. Yeah. And he basically says, hi, I'm Matt with the Cedar Rapids Police Department. He keeps it very casual. Mm -hmm. We're following up on an old murder case, a homicide that happened at Westdale Mall. Michelle Martinko, ever heard of it? <laughs> and Matt Denlinger shows Jerry a photo of Michelle and asks Jerry, do you remember her? Right. And he says, no. 
And then, you know, they chat for a little bit because he does agree to be interviewed. But then Matt drops this truth bomb. He says, yo, Jerry, I have a warrant to collect your DNA. Just like out of the blue. You know, they're kind of just, you know, do you know her? Have you ever seen her? Do you familiar with the case? No, no, no. And then Matt just says, okay, well, I have a warrant to collect your DNA. Wow. And then Matt says, quote, I'm just spitballing here, but we probably know going in that this is going to be a match, (laughs) end quote. And Jerry says back, quote, oh, really? Why would that be? And then Detective Denlinger tells him, look, it, we've already collected your DNA. We already know your DNA is going to match the DNA that we have on file. The jig is up. We know you're caught. Wow. End of story. This is it, dude. And Jerry says, hmm. He's just sitting there. Hmm. And outside advanced coding concepts, well, the county prosecutor, Nick Maybanks, is standing by. He just happened to be driving by that day. (laughs) No, he was there because they were taking Jerry down. He's in a surveillance van listening to the whole thing on a live wire. Wow. And Detective Denlinger is wearing this wire, wearing this little tiny secret camera, And they're almost giddy to get this guy. The thing that's most amazing to me is that when he's presented with all of this evidence with DNA and all this other stuff, and the only thing he says is, hmm, Hmm. (laughs) if that were me and I was innocent, I'd be like, what? What are you talking about? Oh, my gosh. We're going to get to that. You're good. You're very, very good. But they think maybe, just maybe, when they remind him of the date, December 19th, that he'll confess. He'll say something. Sure. And so what they say is, do you know what today is? And he goes, December 19th. And then they said, did you murder someone on that night, (laughs) December 19th, Jerry? And he's like, test the DNA. And then he asks, why did this happen, Jerry? And his reply again is, Test the DNA. And then Detective Denlinger says, what happened, Jerry? And Jerry goes, I don't know. I was not there that night. And then Denlinger says, quote, well, we know better than that. You know better than that. And you know I'm not lying, end quote. (laughs) So Jerry's admitting to nothing. They wanted a confession. They get nada. When they ask him to look at Michelle's photo and ask if he's someone she knows, he says, quote, I don't believe so. And when they don't get any more information out of him, they arrest 64-year-old Jerry Lynn Barnes and charge him with murder one because they've got DNA evidence. They can charge him with murder one. So he's taken into custody, placed in the county jail with a $5 million cash bond. (laughs) He's not going anywhere. He is not going anywhere. (laughs) The only place he's going is to the Lynn County Jail. Now, Jerry pleads not guilty. Jerry's family hires one of Iowa's top defense attorneys. His name is Leon Spies, and they're going to hammer away at the reliability of the DNA and the constitutionality of the DNA evidence because they took Jerry's DNA from a straw without his permission. And without this DNA evidence, the prosecution has nothing. And from the outside, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense that a man, a widower with nothing more than a few speeding tickets to his name, is a cold-blooded killer. Where's the motive? Right. But... Prosecution has more than just the straw, the DNA on the straw. They have the dress, and even though the dress is 40 years old, the match from the blood on Michelle's dress that wasn't hers is still there. Now, there's not a lot of the killer's blood at the scene, but they think that's because the killer was wearing gloves. But somehow, when she's fighting him off, he cuts his hand. Hmm. So here's what they believe. The majority of the blood was inside the glove, inside Uh. the assailant's glove. But some of it was found on the back of Michelle's dress and on the gear shift of the car. Right. Wait, let me ask one question. Did they check for any scars on his hand? I I don't Wait. know. Oh, okay. I, I didn't read that. But you, I mean, that makes, that would make perfect sense. Yeah. That would make perfect sense. I mean, unless it was a superficial cut. Sure. So, yeah. The trial was originally scheduled for October 14th, 2019. But in September, the defense requested a delay in order to gather more evidence and interview witnesses. And the defense also requested that the trial be moved out of Lynn County based on the amount of attention the case had received over the past 40 years, (laughs) as well as, quote, pervasive and prejudicial pretrial publicity, end quote. Wow. The prosecution did not resist either request, and the trial was rescheduled for February 10th. 2020 in Scott County. 
Now, in pretrial hearings, Burns' attorney claimed that police needed a search warrant to gather his DNA from this discarded straw. And the judge said, nah, discarded property can't be reasonably considered private. You left it at the table. It's not private property. And the defense also requested that evidence pertaining to Burns' cell phone browser history be suppressed. Why? Investigators had reviewed Burns' 2018 internet searches and found that he regularly visited websites showing blonde women being raped, stabbed, and strangled, and which depicted sexual intercourse with murder victims. Wow. The judge said that the search history was not usable in the trial due to the decades of time separating the murder and the searches. Hmm. Now, this is important because not only was Jerry watching porn like this, he had search histories also of assault, of rape, of murder, and sex with freshly dead person. Wow. But Leon spies, fights, and successfully keeps this out of the trial. Okay. On day one of the trial, February 12th, 2020, Michelle's family and friends pack the courtroom, and Jerry does not look like a monster. He's very average. He's a 64-year-old guy from Iowa. He's a little paunchy. He's ordinary. Doesn't look like a killer at all. Looks like somebody's grandfather. Sure. The prosecuting attorney, Nick Maybanks, is on this. He explains the unlikelihood of this DNA belonging to anybody else. Well, and this is the the argument every time. I I don't know why they have to argue this every time. DNA is DNA. It is, but everyone's entitled to a fair trial because this is America, Rob. (laughs) He brings Michelle back to life, Nick Maybanks. He gets in front of this jury and he brings Michelle back to life. Her classmates testify about who Michelle was, what a great person she was. Her old boyfriend, a guy, you know, his name was tossed around in gossip circles for years that he was a killer. Andy Seidel, he takes the stand to speak about Michelle. He really loved her back then, and he took a lot of heat because people wanted answers, and he was the rebuffed ex-boyfriend, and he was the target of the investigations. And I have to say, what a great guy, what a stand-up guy, after you know he went through hell to come back into town and testify. I can't imagine being accused of murder when you had absolutely nothing. And you're just a kid. Yeah, guilty by association. Yeah. Yeah. Michelle's family wanted to tell him how sorry they were that they ever thought of him that way. But after testifying, Andy left Cedar Rapids. He yeeted on out of there. He testified and he was gone. But that's a bum deal to have that hanging over your head when you know you've done nothing wrong. Next on the stand is Kurt Thomas, the person who was last to see Michelle that night at the mall and another person who the police tried to railroad into confessing that he'd murdered his friend. Right. And he remembered Michelle's smile, and he called it, quote, the goodbye smile, end quote. And he would get very teary-eyed. He was very teary-eyed on the stand, and he tells the court that it has affected him his entire life. And I can't imagine. So how do you process this, knowing that you're the last person to see somebody that night? And they were kids at the time, kids. But he feels so guilty to this day that he didn't walk her to her car. Wow. Yeah. But it was Iowa. Yeah. It was 1979. Yeah. I mean, this is when we played until it got dark outside. And I mean, there were no cell kind of phones. Things. You didn't think about those kinds of things. Yeah. And I think he needs to cut himself a break. But I've seen interviews with him where he just basically says it, it has affected him his whole life. Wow. Then the prosecution emphasized the unlikelihood of the DNA evidence matching someone other than the person who left it at the scene and the doctor who performed Michelle's autopsy and investigators in the original case all now retired. They all take the stand to testify how the investigation was conducted and to Michelle's cause of death. And the defense argued that the DNA evidence had been mishandled and that different articles of clothing from the scene should not have been stored together in one evidence bag. Wah, wah, whatever. It's there. If it's there, it's there. Yeah. Yeah, it's his DNA. Yeah. On day four of the trial, Detective Matt Denlinger takes the stand, and Matt tells the court that it was a 40-year quest to find Michelle's killer. From the morning she was found at 4 a.m., Matt's father being one of the officers on the scene, to the secretly recorded interview of Jerry on the 39th anniversary of Michelle's death. And they played basically the entire recorded interview for the jury. Wow. And here's the thing. Jerry's attorney was really worried about this tape because in it, Jerry's so calm. He never says 
You're crazy. I had nothing to do with the murder of Michelle Martinko, but he's very calm in the interview. It's exactly what you said. He is not shocked. He is not rattled. And you would think that would be his reaction. Except his reaction is, hmm. Hmm. (laughs) Yeah. And Jerry's attorney, Leon Spies, he's worried about that very thing. So think about it. A detective walks into your place of business, wherever you are listening right now to this podcast, and says... We have your DNA, and we know you're a killer. Yeah. And you know you're not a killer. They've got the wrong person. Wouldn't you be just a little bit upset? I'd be A little shocked. Mind. I mean, there are people who don't want to do like 23andMe and Ancestry.com, and they don't want their DNA in a database anywhere because they're afraid it'll come back to haunt them. Sure. But Jerry's not acting this way in the video at all. At all. And in the video, Jerry Burns never denies killing Michelle. He never says... I did not kill her in this video. And then in the back of the police cruiser, while Jerry's in handcuffs, because this is all on tape too, right. Matt Denlinger asks him if he'd forgotten what happened that night. Did you just forget that you killed her? Did you just forget what happened that night? And Jerry mumbles, quote, sometimes you block things out of your memories, end quote. Oh, wow. Yeah, he probably shouldn't have said that. Yeah, but again. He never denies murdering Michelle. Yeah. And then it's surprise witness time. (laughs) From inside the county jail, Jerry's cellmate in the county jail, his name is Michael Allison, and he's turned informant. Michael said that Jerry called him son. And it's on surveillance video inside the jail of Jerry signing a copy of the Cedar Rapid newspaper where the front page story is about him murdering Michelle. Wow. And he signs it, and in the signature, his dedication, it says, To my favorite son, Michael, Jerry Burns. Cellmate Michael tells the court that Jerry has told him that, quote, No matter what happens in this case, I win because I had the opportunity to be out with my family all these years, end quote. Jeez. Yeah, I mean, he's just pretty much admitting. He is, but he isn't. I know, but if you were innocent, if you had nothing to do with it, you wouldn't be making comments like this. Absolutely true. Yeah. On day seven of the trial, the DNA evidence shows up, and they've put Michelle's black dress on a mannequin. It had to be hard for the family to see that again. But for the jury, they're making her a real person and not a memory of something that happened 40 years ago. And prosecution's going to show the jury exactly where Jerry Burns' DNA was located on the dress. And the chance of it being someone else's DNA is one in 100 billion. So you're saying there's a chance. (laughs) There's my movie reference. (laughs) But the thing is, the defense attorney, Leon Spies, he knows there's not a damn thing he can do to dispute that Jerry's DNA is on this dress. But how did it get there? Right. So Jerry's one shot is their only witness. They got one guy. (laughs) He's got, you got one job. You had one job. He's the punter in this. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, let me tell you what. Can you imagine the amount of... uh, Pressure. Thank you. The amount of pressure. Forensic consultant, Dr. Michael Spence. He's there to explain the DNA transfer theory. (laughs) He tells the jury that coughs, sneezes, speaking into a microphone like we're doing right now, all of these things will leave DNA behind. And what Spies is setting up after two hours of Dr. Spence explaining the DNA transfer theory is that it's possible that Jerry's DNA found on the dress and on the gear shift of Michelle's car that night happened by transfer. Okay. He didn't kill her. It was just transferred to her dress. How to get transferred? Well, here's the thing. <laughs> Before Dr. Spence can even finish, the prosecution objects and says that this whole thing is speculation. And then they wait because now Jerry's whole thread of defense rests on what the judge is going to say. Is she going to allow this DNA transfer theory to stand Or, you know, is it going to be, is she going to allow it or is she going to, yeah, uphold it? So the judge is Faye Hoover grinned. So what is Faye going to say? And she. What do you say, Faye? She allows it. Oh, 
Are you serious? She says he can answer the hypothetical question. Did Jerry's DNA end up on the dress by some sort of transfer? And Dr. Spence says, yes. That's how it happened. In closing arguments, the DA, Nick Maybanks, sets the scene for the murder that night. Jerry follows her to her car in the parking lot. He pushes her into the 72 Buick, and when she fights him off, he stabs her 29 times in the face, neck, and chest, stabs her repeatedly until she is dead. Then for 39 years, he goes on about his life. He marries, has a wife, kids, runs a business, all while knowing that one day a knock might come at his door. And they show that video one more time Hmm. after he says this. Knock, knock, you're caught. (laughs) Knock, knock, who's there? Knock, knock, who's there? (laughs) DNA, Yeah. yeah. And they asked the jury, if someone was accusing you of murder, would you get upset and say, no, you've got the wrong guy, I'm not a killer? Or would you say, as Jerry did, I don't know, I don't think anything happened, I don't think so. And the idea that the DNA was transferred by accident, well, that's just grabbing at non-existent straws. And Maybanks asked the jury to return with murder in the first degree, cold-blooded, premeditated murder. That's what murder one is. Right. But the prosecution, we talked about this a little bit ago. What was the motive? So there's DNA, but there's no motive. But what was not admissible in court was that computer search, the rape, the assault. The jury doesn't know any of that. Right. So there was motive. There was motive. He was kind of a sick guy, but this evidence never made it in front of the jury. He had this pathological need to kill. And I think, and this is just me. I think he killed Michelle and was going to have sex with her dead body, but somebody got too close that night. He freaked. He left. He Mm. didn't finish the job he intended to do. Right. Yeah. So he only got to kill. He didn't get to do the whole thing Mm. because she wasn't sexually molested. She wasn't sexually assaulted. Right. That is just my opinion. He got spooked and ran. Yeah. So without this internet search history, Leon Spies tells the jury there was absolutely no motive for a family man like Jerry to target and murder Michelle. And on the tape, Jerry does say to Matt Denlinger, quote, I was not there that night, end quote. Hmm. That's the closest thing he has to a denial of not killing her. I was not there that night. But they're hanging their hat on this. Look at him. He's a fine, upstanding man. He's never even had a trap. I mean, other than traffic violations, he's got grandkids. Does he look like a killer? Right. They're just hanging this on him. So when the jury goes in to deliberate, nobody has a clue what's going to happen with this. They adjourn late on February 24th of 2020, and everybody's thinking it's going to be tomorrow or the next day. But the jury returns in three hours. And this only means one thing. They either all thought he was really, really guilty. Or he was totally innocent. Or he was totally innocent. So what do you think? I'm going to go with guilty. Guilty. Guilty of murder one. And the Iowan law mandates a life sentence without the possibility of parole for murder one. Good. There is no death penalty in Iowa. So on August 7th, 2020, Jerry Burns was sentenced to life in prison without parole. In September of 2020, Jerry Burns filed a notice of appeal. His new attorney... Kathleen Zellner, the lawyer who was made famous for representing Stephen Avery, one of the subjects in Netflix's Making a Murderer. Mm, Yeah. So we will keep you up to date on anything that happens with this appeal. But I do want to say this. If he is capable of murdering Michelle, what about the suicide of his wife? Yeah. What about the disappearance of his cousin, Brian Burns, on the anniversary of Michelle's murder? And what about another unsolved murder or disappearance in the state? And just what in the heck fire had Jerry Burns been up to all these years? Because in 1995, 27-year-old TV news anchor Jody Husentrout of Mason City, Iowa, goes missing. Mm. And if you put the picture of Michelle Martinko and Jody Husentrout side by side. Guess what? They could be sisters. They're both blonde. They're both beautiful. They're both similar in size and stature. They're both little petite people, similar features. So Jerry had a type. He had a type. But here's where the possible connection with Jody comes in. When Jerry Burns' computer was looked at by investigators, they found a search history that showed a big interest in the, quote, murder of blonde women and porn with blonde women. Mm. And when Burns was being interviewed by Detective Denlinger, he brought up Jody Husentrout for no apparent 
reason. Really? And when the detective reminded him that they weren't talking about Jody, they were talking about Michelle Martinko's murder that happened in 1979, Burns replied, quote, it was a big deal. I don't exactly remember what happened. Seen something about Jody Hoosentrude recently, end quote. <laughs> so why would he bring up Jody's name when he's being questioned about Michelle? Yeah. And if you look at the two cases, there are significant similarities. Both Michelle and Jody were pretty, young, blonde, both from Iowa. Both cases involve them going to their cars. Is it all just coincidental, or could Jerry Burns have had something to do with Jody Hoosentrout vanishing 25 years ago? Right. Jody disappeared in the early morning hours of June 27, 1995, soon after telling a colleague that she had overslept and was running late for work. And since there were signs of a struggle outside her apartment, it's believed that she was abducted. Mm. However, extensive investigations have failed to uncover any clues to her disappearance. And Jody was declared legally dead in 2001. Mm. Now, Jerry's attorney says there is no connection between Jody and Jerry. Nothing to see here. Move Move along. (laughs) So was Michelle a one-time gig? And he never did it again. If you've seen his internet search history and his cousin disappears on the anniversary of Michelle's death, there just seems to be a lot of dead or missing people around Jerry and his interests. Right. So once again, as we're recording this, Jerry Burns is sitting in Anamosa State Penitentiary and he's filed his notice of appeal with his new attorney, Kathleen Zellner. And I have a feeling that we might be seeing another Netflix documentary. <laughs> Who knows? Yep. But that is the story of Michelle Martinko and her killer, Jerry Burns. And that's all I have to say about that. Hey, Hitch to Homicide listeners. This is Chris Calvert. I love doing research and writing about real crimes, but I also love writing about fictional people who commit horrible atrocities. When you're ready to take a break from true crime for fictional crime, go to chriscalvert.com where you'll find all my books, including some free ones to get you started. Jane Doe is one badass chick who quietly hunts terrorists in the United States. The Sex and Lies books are all FBI and CIA cases with a little romance on the side. And coming summer 2022, book 10 in the series, Sex, Lies, and Rock and Roll, releases. You can find all of these books everywhere, and if you like to listen instead of read, you can find them all on Audible. So go grab a free book or take a listen. I love all the characters I've written. I've given them pain, ruined their lives, make them suffer, and maybe even throw in a heroic death. Or maybe they live to fight another day. Check it all out at chriscalvert.com. And thanks for being a listener of Hitched to Homicide. Well, Jerry, Jerry, Jerry. Oh, my gosh. Jerry needs to rot in jail. (laughs) That's the way I feel about That's how I feel about Jerry. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He's lucky he's got good lawyers. And here's the thing, though. He's probably, he probably really is going to get his own documentary. And he's just getting more publicity for this guy. But the, the story needs to be about Michelle. Yep. Really needs to be about Michelle. What a lovely girl. Jerry just needs to rot in the jail cell. I think he's gonna. Good. Well, let's get away from that. Yes, let's do it. Uh, I'm ready for something good. And let's do a little of Bless Your Heart. (laughs) Well, bless your heart. Well, and here's why you don't try a complicated exercise in the middle of committing a crime. (laughs) What? I know. There you go. Dateline, Selena, Kansas. A guy in Selena, Kansas woke up around 5 a.m. upon hearing some noises in his basement. And when he went down there, he found a burglar was in his house and was trapped. Like a rat. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) 39-year-old Jamie Sanders had broken into the house and then tried to use an inversion table that was in the basement. (gasps) And if you're not familiar with what uh, an inversion table is, it's an exercise machine where you strap yourself in. Yeah. And you go upside down and, you know, do... Setups. Setups. Yeah. Or stretch your back out or... Yeah, people use them all the time. Well, (laughs) this guy gets into it. And because he's, I don't know, he's out of shape or what, he doesn't have any core. He can't get out of this thing. So he straps himself in and now he's stuck. Okay. Yeah. You've set the scene. Yep. Yep. So he was trapped. The cops came in and he was arrested for aggravated burglary. (laughs) 
And all he had managed, this is the best part, and all he had managed to steal before he tried the exercise was a container of cranberry juice. That's what he stole? Yeah, so at least his prostate's going to be a good shape. No, I was going to say he's hydrating. He was going to hydrate after his workout. Why would you pause to work out in the middle of, there's drugs involved. There's more to that story. He's Bless a, his heart. Yeah, he's he's a burglar and he's breaking into your house and you've got to ask for reasoning. Yeah. Okay. I swear if we found somebody downstairs on my soul cycle in the middle of the night. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, yeah. I'd be like, right on, dude. Yeah. Right on. Yeah, exactly. Just make sure you're logged into my account. Yeah, if you're gonna log some miles, put it under my name, okay? Oh, well, bless his heart. Bless his heart. <laughs> Well, if you have a bless your heart, you can send it to Chris at HitchToHomicide.com and maybe we'll read yours on the air. We're so glad that you joined us again this week. That's my husband over there, Rob. And that's my beautiful bride, Chris. And by the way, it's our anniversary this week. 14 years. Hitch to Homicide anniversary. (laughs) Here it it is. (laughs) Join us next time on Hitch to Homicide. Bye, y'all.